If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 23, where we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25. I don't know about you, but growing up, I was the youngest of eight, and uh, it was, uh, you know, sometimes a trial to be the baby. Because you're left out, you know, you're too little to do cool things and you can feel rejected by the older brother or sister. And uh, maybe you uh, had lots of friends and came to Christ and all of a sudden all those friends weren't your friends anymore. And so you know what it's like to be rejected. Maybe you've had family reject you because you're a Christian and now you're kind of a Jesus freak and you scare them. And so they don't really want to have anything to do with you. Maybe you're ignored by coworkers because they know you're one of those goody two-shoes and you don't like to hear about the things that they love. And so whenever you enter the room, it gets quiet and you're often left out of conversations. Not that you want to hear about their carnality, but you, you feel the kind of the rejection of that. Or maybe, um, maybe your mom or your dad works long hours from home and sometimes you kind of feel a little supplanted and rejected or maybe your parents are divorced and maybe they're divorced again and maybe they've been divorced after that and every time you feel kind of rejected by one or the other or both or maybe your spouse has been unfaithful and you feel rejected or uh, a number of other things rejection just hurts it hurts and the more you love somebody the harder it is to receive rejection from them the harder it is to bear and the whole emotional trauma of it is just it's hard to, to to just endure as we come to the text this morning it's clear that not only is jesus suffering great physical abuse he is also suffering great mental abuse at the same time because he certainly is rejected like nobody else was ever rejected and so we're going to hurt with jesus this morning as we consider just the massive weight of rejection that came upon him and you know i know um uh, this is burdensome in in a degree i even read commentaries that said it's best to just quickly survey these chapters not to burden your people too much but you know what we need burdened we need to feel the pain we need to go through it with jesus and if he could go through it for a half a day surely we could over the course of several weeks Last week, we looked at Jesus' trial. He was tried twice at night before Annas, the former high priest, and then again before Caiaphas, the high priest. And then after that, the whole Sanhedrin and kind of an official Jewish trial after daylight. And again, Caiaphas was presiding over that. And so now that they've tried him three times themselves, they then took him to Pilate. And Pilate, of course, tries him and finds him innocent. So he sends him to Herod and Herod interrogates him and doesn't get anything out of him and sends him back uh, uh, because he's innocent. Five times Jesus had been tried and 12 hours or so. He's endured all of this without having slept with continual beatings and mockings and degradation. He's been shipped over to Herod. And because Herod was told that Jesus told Pilate that he was a king and his kingdom was not of this world. Herod then kind of as a joke puts his robe on Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. 
The Sanhedrin, uh, of course, have to march Jesus through the very busy streets of Jerusalem. It's the busiest time of the entire year in Jerusalem because of all the people who have come from Passover to celebrate the Passover feast, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and so there is this huge, huge group of Jews in Jerusalem, some three million of them, according to Josephus. And as Jesus is marched from Herod's palace to, you know, the praetorium where Pilate is and these Jews are everywhere crammed into every nook and cranny. We know from uh, Josephus's writings that they see this and there's already a crowd that's following the Sanhedrin. Now they see all 70 of the Sanhedrin on the Passover day marching through the streets with a very beat up guy with the robe of a king. It's quite the curiosity. And so a lot of people, we don't know how many, but Luke says in Luke 23, 27, that it was a very large crowd. A huge multitude has assembled in front of the praetorium and it's Passover day. And this brings us to our text, Luke 23, verse 13 and following. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. You can follow along as I read or just listen. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all the more, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept calling, kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent and with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now, this really, compared to the other Gospels, is a very, very condensed account of what happened to Jesus uh, this day as he is kind of final sentencing before Pilate. The other gospels give us quite a bit more detail, but even within here, there is a lot of, of information. And when you put all the accounts together, it's hard to get the exact chronology. And so, uh, the chronology is kind of uncertain as to what events actually happened in what order and what they said when, uh, we don't really know. But what I want to do is show you four ways, uh, how Jesus, though innocent, suffered for you. So that you can better understand, um, his sufferings and understand his love for you and really be motivated to worship him, to live for him, to really uh, strive against sin because of what Jesus has done for you. The first thing is Jesus, innocent but punished for you. We learned last time in 
John gives us quite a bit of detail. Luke's version is very condensed, but it's the Passover day and... Because it's the Passover day uh, for the Jews, some of the Jews don't want to go into the Praetorium. Now, if you remember, the Jews in the north had a different day, way of reckoning days than the Jews around Jerusalem area. And so the northern Jews would reckon their days from sun rise to sunrise after creation there was morning and there was evening as genesis states and that's how they reckon their days and so their passover started what would be thursday morning and would last until friday morning the southern jews though which involves the whole sanhedrin would reckon their days from sunset to sunset that would be thursday evening to friday evening and they would celebrate their passover meal actually on the 15th at the beginning of the 15th which would be friday evening after sunset so they haven't yet celebrated their passover jesus then um because he's taken into this roman building uh the jewish leaders don't want to enter into the building the praetorium because it's a gentile building and they don't want to be defiled and unclean because they've gone into a gentile building before celebrating the passover they're so pious in this way um, though they're condemning an innocent man they're concerned about not being unclean and actually um, maintaining a man-made tradition this means that when Pilate examines Jesus, he examines Jesus inside the praetorium and then has to keep coming out to speak to the Jews. So whenever he's speaking to the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin, he's not only speaking to them, but the entire multitude that has gathered at this time. And believe me, you know what happens. I mean, if you're walking down the street and there's a huge crowd of people looking at something, what do you do? You stop and look. I mean, it's just how it is. It's kind of a human gawker jam. And so all these people now have gathered around, find a man. And what's going on? This is huge. Look at, you know, let's check it out. And everybody's talking and all the rumors are going on. So Pilate then comes out and maybe he stood at a balcony or possibly in the grand entrance to the praetorium. And he is going to now address the Jews who brought Jesus back to him. And if you look at verse 13 of Luke 23, Pilate, some of the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So he's everybody's hearing it. And he said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I've found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So Pilate comes out and he says, before all, Jesus is innocent. I examined him thoroughly. And the word um, examine means to thoroughly examine, to examine from top to bottom. And of course, Pilate really only mentions the one thing that Rome would really be concerned about is that Jesus was inciting as some false Messiah rebellion against Rome. And he's the governor. He would know about it. And there's been no rebellion incited because of Jesus. Um, uh, the word incite can be uh, referred to turning people away, you know, from either their civil duties to Rome or their religious duties. Of course, Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is turning people uh, against Judaism or a different brand of Judaism or whatever. He doesn't really care because he's he doesn't care. He's a heartless man. Uh, the, I think uh, both Eusebius and uh, Josephus describe Pilate as a very 
base, selfish, self-serving man who really didn't care about anybody. And there are some pretty gruesome stories um, just about the things that he did. Now, Pilate comes out and he says, Jesus is innocent. Secondly, he says, I want you to know, I sent him to one of your own judges, Herod, and Herod examined him, as you know, and Herod sent him back, implied because he's innocent. And he says in verse 15, towards the end, nothing deserving death has been done by him, which reveals to us that the Sanhedrin was pushing for the death sentence. Of course, that is why they brought Jesus to Pilate, because they could have done mild punishment to Jesus, but they weren't allowed to kill anybody. And so they had to have Pilate do that. And so thereafter, the death sentence. They're very angry with Jesus because he exposed them as religious hypocrites. They have tried him three times themselves. They've now brought him before Pilate, who said he's innocent. Herod, he's innocent. Now Pilate says again, he's innocent. And what's amazing is, is Jesus has undergone double jeopardy. You know, that means he's been tried twice for the same crime, really five times, a quintuple jeopardy, if you want to include the two unofficial Jewish trials and the official Jewish trial. Nevertheless, he is still found innocent by these official judges. I mean, you can see it at the end of verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. And then our text, verse 14, I find no guilt in this man. And he says the same thing in verse 15 and the same thing in verse 22. And you're thinking, well, man, Luke keeps mentioning this. Well, when you look at all the Gospels, I think it appears like eight times. You say, why? Why is Luke stressing the fact that Jesus was innocent? This is why. Because in order for Jesus to be the Lamb of God, he had to be Innocent, blameless. You see, lambs had to be without blemish, otherwise they weren't acceptable to God. Jesus was going to be the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, who would take away the sins of the world. And so in order to do that, he had to be perfect, sinless, blameless. And so Luke emphasizes how many times, specifically, Jesus was declared to be innocent. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now in the Old Testament, you will uh, read several texts that say one person cannot die for the sins of another. As a matter of fact, if you were to get online and look at um, uh, Jewish sites and say, why don't you believe in the Messiah? They say, well, the Old Testament law says, for instance, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for the sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. It was against the law of God for anybody to die for someone else. Why? I mean, if a father wanted, let's say, had had a son who, you know, got drunk or in a fit of anger killed somebody and he was going to be put to death and the father realizes his life is mostly spent and he wants to give his son a chance to carry on his name and to get married, might say, you know, son, I'm willing to die in your place. God says, no, you can't do that. Why? Because the justice that really needed to be satisfied was the justice of God. And you can't take somebody who's a sinner 
and have the sinner make atonement or satisfy justice for another sinner. You need, you would need to find somebody who had no sin, who was willing to die for sinners. Of course, nobody in the Old Testament really fit that picture because they were all sinners in Adam. Of course, this is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin and have God as his father. Having God as his father, he then didn't have the sin imputed to him from Adam. And not only that, he was still though the legitimate heir because he was adopted by Joseph. So he had all the rights and privileges of a full heir to the throne, for he was of the tribe of Judah. So this is why God says you cannot die for someone else's sin because you would have to be sinless. So that is why the Gospels, especially Luke, state over and over again, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's done no wrong, he's done no wrong, he's done no wrong, so that we would realize that he is the Lamb of God. Now, we all know that when you go to court and they try you and you're found innocent, they don't then send you to another court and try you. But in this case, that happened. But when you're found innocent twice, you then get to go home. You're innocent. You get to go free. However, look at verse 16. Pilate says, therefore, I will punish him and release him. What? He's innocent, innocent, innocent. And so you're going to punish him? Pilate says the same thing in verse 22, which we'll get to in a minute. To punish someone who is innocent, that is a mockery of justice. Imagine, you know, someday you're, you're going to go to lunch. And so, uh, you know, you leave work and you head out to, you know, Get a bite to eat, and all of a sudden you're tackled by the police who who rough you up pretty bad, put handcuffs on you, tell everybody watching, we've caught a terrorist. And you're thinking, what? They take you to the police station, put you down in a cell, they beat you, they beat you, they beat you, they spit on you, they accuse you of things you never did, they won't let you get a lawyer. They just abuse you all night long until the morning. You have no idea what was going on. I mean, you just wanted a hot dog for lunch. They deny you your rights. They rush your case through, denying you a fair trial by jury. The only people at the trial are angry prosecutors and a wicked judge. And yet, after the trial, amazing thing. The judge says, well... You're innocent. I mean, hallelujah. You get to go. No. 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 The prosecutors, they all crowd around the judge and say, you cannot let him go. You cannot let him go. This is wrong. This is wrong. And the judge then seeing that there are so many people who are against him says, okay, you can go try him in a federal court. So they beat you up some more and then they march you across the street and they plop you down before another judge and they accuse you and they accuse you and they accuse you. And the federal judge, after hearing everything, says, well, I think he's innocent. Yay, you get to go. No, they're mad and they tell the judge that they're mad. And the, the judge, because he's a man pleaser, says, "Okay, how about I punish him? That's what happened to Jesus. I'll punish him and then release him. Jesus was innocent and yet punished. 
Now, some have pointed out that the word translated punish in verse 16 speaks of a mild form of punishment, like disciplining a child. And you know what? That's how it's usually used, just a mild form of punishment. And it is true. And there's actually some historical record of times when people were brought to trial and the Roman judge might give them some mild punishment, though they were found to be innocent just to put the fear of Rome in them. But nothing severe. You know, yeah, give them 10 whacks with the lash and and then send them packing to just let them know we're, we're serious and we don't want to see you back here clogging up our court system again. Well, some have then said, well, notice that since Luke uses this word, he, he wasn't scourged. I mean, he wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything severe going on. He was just mildly punished. There's a problem with that thought. And that is that when Jesus describes what's going to happen to him in Luke chapter 18, verse 33, he uses the specific word for scourging, which is severe punishment. Not only that, in John chapter 19, verse 1, it tells us that Jesus was scourged. It uses the specific word for severe punishment. Gerhard Kittel in his theological dictionary of the New Testament says what Jesus underwent is, quote, Roman punishment which precedes execution of and which is of far greater severity, end quote. So the question is, why does Luke use the word for mild punishment? Why does he say that is the word that Pilate used if, in fact, he was scourged? Because that's the word that Pilate used. Because Pilate wanted to mildly punish him. Pilate wanted to just, I mean, Pilate was ready to just let him go, right? But they wouldn't have it. So he says, okay, I'll mildly punish him and let him go. But they wouldn't have that either. Luke tells us that Pilate wanted to mildly punish him in both verse 16 and verse 22. But the fact is, Matthew 27, verse 26, Mark 15, verse 15, and John 19, verse 1, tell us that he was scourged. So in other words, when Pilate first tried to get rid of, send Jesus away, scot-free, they wouldn't have it. So he offered, he's negotiating with them, mild punishment. He's trying to plea bargain to kind of get Jesus and them out of his face on Passover day. They won't have it. And so now he has given permission to have Jesus scourged, according to John chapter 19, verse 1. Now, what does it mean to be scourged? A scourge is a whip or a a knout, which is like a a whip with a wooden handle on it, kind of like a short baseball bat with multiple, um, you know, ends to it. And then the... The scourge had these multiple ends and then it had woven into the the leather uh, bone and glass and iron um, so that when you somebody was whipped with it, it would it would the, the, the purpose was is to take their skin off their back, their sides and their stomach because they were holding a post. The whip would come around and just just rake them out. They'd hit them from both directions to make sure they were thoroughly skinned and grated 
James Stocker in his Life of Christ describes the scourging, quote, it took place, it would appear on the platform where the trial had been held and in the eyes of all. The victim was stripped and stretched against the pillar or bent over at a low post, his hands being tied so that he had no means of defending himself. The instrument of torture was a sort of knout or cat of nine tails with bits of iron or bone attached to the ends of the thongs. Not only did the blows cut the skin and draw blood, but frequently the victim died, end quote. So in other words, when we're talking about scourging, we're talking about a punishment that was so severe, just that alone often killed people. This is what Pilate finally agreed to, to appease the Jews. And it is very possible that they all stood and watched Jesus get scourged. It was usually done in public because it was trying to be a uh, an, a warning against anybody who would go against, a deterrent. So that's what happened to Jesus, scourging. However, by not releasing Jesus and allowing Jesus to be scourged, this inadvertently subjected Jesus to other abuse. The soldiers, having received permission to scourge Jesus, now felt the freedom to abuse Jesus as they pleased and do things to him that Pilate did not say to do. So they wove a crown of thorns and pressed it down upon his head, according to Matthew 27, verse 29, Mark 15, verse 17, and John 19, 2. We don't know the exact plant that was used, but most likely it was a barberry plant. And uh, these come in different varieties, but towards the ends, they just have lots of stickers on them and they get hard. The stickers are uh, kind of like uh, sharp nails or thick needles. They're anywhere from one half to two inches long, depending on what variety you have. The thorns are very painful. They often cause... Uh, infection when you get poked. I, I can tell you from personal experience, having been poked by one, that there it's no um, walk in the park to even get one jab. Uh, the they make great kind of natural razor wire. No animal, no burglar will ever cross a barberry bush or hedge. I mean, if you have one, nobody ever comes over there. They just don't go in there. It's, it's, uh, you can just take a couple wraps of barber and put around a tree and the squirrels won't even go up there. If it's the right kind. I mean, it's serious stuff. Uh, in, in California, we have some, uh, uh, if you have ever trimmed a pyracantha bush, um, the thorns are very similar to pyracanthus. Very hard, very strong. They can go right through a thick pair of gloves, um, and, uh, leather gloves they're 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 pretty brutal so you they took one of these uh, some branches of these and they wove together this thorny crown this loop to put on jesus's head and then they pressed it down on his head so all those thorns would jab into his skin and his flesh on his brow which is really one of the more tender places of our body which has lots of blood vessels and capillaries and so he would have just been just running down blood on his face, which at this time is beaten and swollen and lacerated to, you know, non-recognition. The thorns were to have pierced his skin and, and, and because they keep beating him, they just would have just aggravated the pain. Now this is after he's been beaten all night and beaten several times and scourged. He gets the crown. 
Third, they repeatedly struck Jesus in the face, according to John 19, 3. They, it says they, they gave him blows, a hard word for strong, brutal, you know, deafening blows to the head, the face particularly. Fourth, they put a reed in Jesus' hand and put the royal robe back on him, knelt before him with mocking disdain, and continued to spit on him. And then they took the reed from his hand and then beat him on the head, which of course would have driven some of those thorns into his skull. Striking the crown of thorns must have been exceedingly painful. And by this time, the blood must have just been, I mean, really just flowing down his whole head, his neck, his face, everything. Isaiah tells us what Jesus looked like in Isaiah 52 verse 14. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Jesus was beaten and scourged beyond recognition. The author of the classic hymn realized this when he wrote and it was... Uh, the instrumental was played this morning. Oh, sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighed down. Now scornfully surrounded with thorns thy only crown. How art thou pale with anguish, with sore abuse and scorn. How does that visage languish, which once was bright as morn. That was Jesus. And it's hard to even imagine, imagine the suffering. I mean, we don't even want to imagine it. It's like, no, thank you. Let's move on. But this is what we're called to think about during communion. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And these are the kind of things that we need to just bring into our, our minds and to picture them and to shudder over them. Jesus knew it was going to happen. Jesus predicted it was going to happen. He could have called for 12 legions of angels to come and, and deliver him. Being God, he could have, you know, spoke the bad guys out of existence, uh, spoke the universe out of existence. But he didn't do that. He went to all this pain, suffered all of this torment, all of this exceeding anguish and agony and humiliation for you. He suffered this for you. Secondly, Jesus, innocent but exchanged for a criminal for you. Look at verse 17. It says, now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. Now, if you have the new American Standard Bible, you'll see that it's in brackets. If you have the English Standard Version, you'll notice that it's not even there. It's disappeared. And if uh, you have maybe another version, it might have like a little footnote there. Uh, why is that? Well, because this particular verse doesn't appear in the oldest most reliable manuscripts then you might well then how do we know it's true and why what is it doing here well this is why we know it's true because the other gospels have it so what probably happened and this happens sometimes is scribes in copying the bible would sit down and they were so familiar with all the gospels when they got to something like this they might have gone through and somebody might have just put a notation in the margin you know, in brackets or parentheses or whatever. Yeah, this is, uh, because it goes down to speak of Barabbas being released. It, yeah, they, he, they were obliged to release somebody. And that was just in the margin. It wasn't part of the text. Well, that guy then grows old and dies. And somebody else has this ancient manuscript now that's 100 years old. It's starting to get ratty. And so he's going to recopy it. 
because it's the only one he's got. And then when he's reading it, he says, whoa, look at that in the margin. It's yeah, that says exactly what Matthew and Mark and John say. I wonder why it's there. You know what? He probably left it out by accident and then put it there. I better put it in because I know it's true and I know what happened. So then he includes it. So then now anybody who then copies his copy all get the version with it inside. That is why when they go back, all of a sudden they'll find manuscripts that have some word or phrase in it. And all of a sudden it gets to a certain place and any, everything older doesn't have it. And that's how it is here. So though it probably doesn't belong in the text, it does belong in the gospel story. Um, there was a tradition, I guess, that Rome decided as since Jerusalem was so packed that one of the things they would do for the people is on the Passover day, they would ask the Jews, listen, we'll release one prisoner for you. And uh, maybe a political prisoner, a rabbi or something who got angry and outspoken and they would release that person. So that's what's being referred to here. Matthew 27 verse 19 tells the pilot had even more reason to release Jesus. Uh, not only uh, because uh, uh, this opportunity arose with the release of a prisoner that was, the, you know, whoever was the popular prisoner of the people could be set free. But it also says in Matthew 27, 19, that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with the righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So while Pilate is inside the praetorium, he's sitting on his judgment seat and, you know, he's trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. He gets this message from his wife saying, listen, I had a dream last night. And do whatever you do, do not condemn Jesus. He's an innocent man. And, and I suffered greatly because of this dream. And now Pilate, see, being a Roman, being superstitious, thinking, oh, no. What does that mean? Though we know that while, why, while Pilate was inside trying to figure out what to deal with, what to do with Jesus... The Jewish leaders outside who hated Jesus, not all of them, because we know that there was Nicodemus and other Jews were in favor, but the bulk of them were very offended by Jesus and wanted him done away with. So they're now working this huge multitude saying, hey, we have an opportunity now to get somebody released. And so let's have them release Barabbas, not Jesus. Jesus has done this. Jesus has done that. Jesus has done this. He even claimed this. He said he was going to destroy the temple. You know, those kinds of things. And so the crowd now is being swayed while Pilate is inside. The crowd is being swayed on the outside of the praetorium. Look at verse 18. But they cried out together. This is Pilate finally returns. And they cry out together, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. So you can see by this time they've swayed the multitudes. Verse 19 puts this little comment. He was one, speaking of Barabbas, who had been thrown to prison for insurrection, made in the city and for murder. Barabbas was actually the real deal of the criminal that they were saying Jesus was. Matthew 27 verses Verses 20 through 23 says, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. So they're working the crowds. Verse 21 says, but the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ or Messiah? And they all said, notice they all said at this time, they've all been swayed crucify him and he said why what evil has he done but they kept shouting all the more saying crucify him 
And we know from John chapter 19, verse 3, that during this time, Jesus was being beaten up by the soldiers. While Pilate was out talking to the people, the soldiers were still beating on him. And you have to realize that when Jesus said in the garden, this is the hour of darkness, I'm giving, I'm giving this hour to the powers of darkness, that what he was saying is, I'm going to let Satan and his demons use these evil men to do their worst to me. And so now, these men in what apparent appears to us to be irrational are being driven to just take Jesus out piece by piece through brutal punishment and torture. John chapter 19 verses 4 through 11 gives us this more detailed account. Listen to it. Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now think about it. At this time, Jesus has this crown beaten on his head. There's blood flowing down his face and his neck. He's been scourged in front of them. They now have the robe on him. He is, he is, he's been punished for an innocent guy. He's been major punished. It's not enough. The chief Priests and the officers, verse 6 says, cried out, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. But the Jews, see, couldn't crucify anybody. The Jews then answered, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. They never thought that maybe he was. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was he was even more afraid and he entered in the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Somewhere about this time, Pilate released Barabbas, the known murderer, robber, and insurrectionist, to the multitude of a Jew, the Jews. And what's interesting is they have now asked for the notorious criminal to go free and for the innocent guy to be punished. It reminds me of the verse that Christ died for sins, you know, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. This is what's happening here. And keep in mind that though the majority of the Sanhedrin hated Jesus, there's certain of them that don't. Nicodemus is surely here watching all of this with his mouth shut, probably praying, saying, Lord, do something. And he was. In fact, Nicodemus speaking for the Pharisees says to Jesus in John chapter three, verse two, we know that you are a teacher has come from God for no one could do the miracles and signs that you do unless God is with them. I mean, he even lets Jesus know that the bulk of them all realize you can't go around doing miracle after miracle for three years unless God is with you. It was apparent. They had the prophets. They have all the stuff with John the Baptist, all the stuff with Jesus' birth, all the stuff with Jesus' ministry. They now have the triumphal entry, the teaching of Jesus on the Temple Mount. I mean, they got plenty of information to know that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. That's not an issue with them. They don't care if he is the Messiah. 
Because if he is the Messiah, he's against them. Therefore, they don't want him. In Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 which must have been a very deja vu type situation because this is after the start of the church, which means Jesus already died, rose from again. There's been that period of time, you know, the 40 days or whatever. And he has appeared to the disciples. They have then gone back to Jerusalem. And now Peter is getting ready to go up in the temple mount. As he goes up there, he sees this lame man who's begging for alms because he's lame. And so Peter says, listen, I, I, I don't have anything I can give you uh, as far as monetarily speaking, but what I do have, I can give you in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. Well, this that guy then becomes an advertiser. He gets up and starts doing a jig. And so when they go up on the temple mount, the, the guy's freaking out and everybody looks at the guy. Isn't that the guy who's been sitting out you know, in front of the, the, the gate for years and years and years? Look at him. He's healed. And it says they were all astonished. And then this is what Peter says in Acts 3, verse 12 and following. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power and piety we made him walk? And I'm sure that some of the Jewish leaders who were up on the Temple Mount then thought, oh, no. You know, we thought we got rid of this whole thing. You know, we got rid of Jesus and the whole healing thing and it's all been covered up and the supposed resurrection and all that mess and, and now things are calming down and the Peter comes up, heals the guy and he's going to start preaching the gospel. So what does he say? He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Whew. Peter at this time is exceedingly bold. He goes up there and just, you killed your own Messiah. And you asked for a criminal instead of your own Messiah. Now we know rejection. All of us have probably felt rejection from somebody at some time, but this rejection is huge. Because Jesus has been laboring to let people know who he is. I mean, he's not trying to hide it. He's walking all over the entire country. There's all these prophecies that he fulfilled to let them know he's the right guy. And Peter says, yeah, you guys wanted the criminal, Barabbas. And what's interesting is the Aramaic name Barabbas means son of the father. Fitzmaier says, quote, the irony of the scene is apparent. They scream for the release of the one called Barabbas, son of the father, and reject him who is really the father's son, end quote. I mean, there's all these weird parallels going on at the same time. The criminal goes free. The innocent guy gets punished. The son of the father goes free. The father's son rejected. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 says he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse 7 and 8 go on to say he was oppressed, he was afflicted. 
And he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Jesus suffered all of this in your place. Jesus bore all of this out of love for you. He was rejected in exchange for a criminal for you. I mean, you can understand why the hymn writer wrote amazing love. How can it be? Third, Jesus was innocent, an innocent king, but in exchanged for Caesar for you. Look at verses 20 and 21. Pilate wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, crucify, crucify. And Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He wanted to release Jesus. He kept trying to release Jesus. Now, Pilate, though, is a smart guy. He's a politician. So on one hand, he's thinking, okay, I want to please the Jews, not because I like them, but because I don't want a riot to start. See, what happened is, is he also doesn't want the... He doesn't want to give the impression that he's a pushover. That if enough Jews get together in front of him and shout real loud, that therefore he's going to do. Because that means they're going to do it every time, right? It's kind of like your kid. When they throw themselves on the floor and you go, let me get you some candy. Let me give you some candy. You're paying them to be naughty. Parents. Um, a whole different sermon. Anyways, so what? Pilate doesn't want that to happen. And so he's thinking, I don't want to cave into these guys, but there are 3 million Jews in Jerusalem. And now they've worked up the crowd. And Pilate knows that if he doesn't do what's right, there's going to be a riot. And there's a lot more Jews in, in, right now in Jerusalem uh, than there are Romans. And there's going to be a huge bloodbath. And so that's not going to look in his, good in his political game card. And so he knows the Jews are really very subtly blackmailing him. They know this and he knows this. But the mob mentality has set in and the multitude was swayed. Earlier, Jesus confessed to Pilate that he was a king and his kingdom was not of this world. And he said, that was the reason I was born. Pilate then must have told that information to whoever it was who then took it to Herod because that information got to Herod. And that's why Herod put the robe on him to mock him. And so the soldiers then added the crown of thorns and a reed for a scepter. And John 19 verse 15 says, So they cried out, Away with him, away with him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And there Jesus is, the crown of thorns, probably the reed in his hand, the robe bleeding to death. And they, the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And at that moment, they rejected Jesus, not only as their Messiah, but as their king. You know, the Old Testament was very clear that God would send a king who would rule and reign forever. And that king would come from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, Jacob is dealing out blessings before he dies to his 12 sons, and when he gets to Judah, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp, and from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares arouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. And so it was predicted the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Later on, After the time of the kings, after David becomes king, 
towards the end of David's life, Nathan the prophet comes to David and it's recorded in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. Nathan says, when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be one of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He, he shall build a house for me and I shall establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. You think forever? That is a long time. The guy would have to be immortal. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness is now standing before his own people. He was sent by the Father to save them. And they're cold enough and bold enough to say, we have no king but the pagan Roman emperor Caesar. That's the guy we want, not this guy. They rejected the Lord our righteousness. And that's an interesting title, the Lord, our righteousness. How is Jesus our righteousness? He's our righteousness because he paid the penalty of our sin. He bore in his body our sins. He died in our place as our substitute, as the lamb of God. And when somebody believes in Jesus for salvation, when they trust Christ alone to save them, when they repent of their sins, Jesus then not only takes their sin from them and forgives them, he gives to them his righteousness so that Jesus's righteousness becomes our righteousness. That's why he's the Lord, our righteousness. And so ponder that Jesus was rejected not only exchange for a criminal, but rejected in exchange for Caesar for you. Fourth and finally, Jesus was innocent, but sentenced to be crucified for you. Look at verse 22. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt in uh, uh, demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent and with loud voices asking that he be crucified and their voices began to prevail. They wouldn't take innocent for an answer. They wouldn't even have a mild punishment for an answer. They wouldn't even accept severe punishment for an answer with additional abuse for an answer. Their pride had been hurt. Their hypocrisy exposed. Their authority had been challenged by Jesus. The word insistent is a word that means to throw your whole weight into something. When it says they insisted and it says loud, it means mega. In other words, at this point, the crowd has gotten into kind of football championship game stadium roaring. They're screaming out in this roar, crucify him, crucify him. And they're shouting down Pilate. Matthew 27 verses 24 and 25 tell us when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. And you know what? The guilt 
certainly is. And for those who place their faith in Jesus, his blood is really on them in a cleansing way. Then we read in Luke 23, 24, and Pilate pronounced a sentence that their demand be granted. And he was released the man who they were asking for, had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now you need to stand back here and see what's happening. You know, when you, when you look at, when you read stuff that the world says about this, they say, oh man, Jesus was, I mean, granted the trial was unjust and it was unfair and it seems like he was innocent and everything, but he had, he had a serious string of bad luck. No, no, um, that's not what happened. Let's not make that mistake that he had a string of bad luck. What was happening here was something more than just bad luck. I mean, think about it. Pilate says, I'll tell you what, I'll give him back to you. No, because we can't kill him. You keep him. Okay, then I'll send him to Herod. Herod sends him back. Okay, I'll tell you what. I'll just mildly punish him. No, I'll severely punish him. No, I'll tell you what. I'll try to get out of it by letting the popular views of the multitude let him escape. No. I mean, he couldn't get out of it. So he says, okay, you can crucify him. William Henderson points out, quote, they knew that Pilate hated them. And they had already proved it in many ways. He already had proved it in many ways. So they were not about to please Pilate. The fact that he wanted their, the release of Jesus was one big reason why they did not want it. End quote. You know, and how could they shout, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he that comes in that huge multitude that said that just five days earlier. How could they do that? And now they're crying for his death. This is why. Because they hoped Jesus was the Messiah. They read the text, some of the texts I just read. They knew those texts said that he would conquer, he'd bring peace. Jesus had no army. He didn't defeat Rome. He didn't exalt Israel. Therefore, he was lying to us. He has deceived us. And so now their animosity against him has turned 180 degrees and they want to see him die for trying to lead the whole nation astray. But this is not a case of bad luck. What's going on here is God and his providence, which Thomas Watson calls the queen and governess of the world, is orchestrating all events so that Jesus will suffer and die for sinners to make atonement for sin. He is making sure that we can be saved. That's what's going on here. Yes, Satan was doing his thing. Yes, demons were doing their thing. Yes, evil men were doing their thing. But concurrently, and guiding all of this was God, who Ephesians 1.11 says, works all things after the counsel of his will. Isaiah 53, 6 and verse 10 says, All of us as sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It was caused by God. Verse 10 says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush Jesus, putting him to grief. Why? If he would render himself as a guilt offering. And he would, so he did. Jesus was innocent yet rejected, innocent yet exchanged for a criminal, innocent yet exchanged for a pagan king, innocent yet sentenced to be crucified for you. 
Isaac Watts wrote, "'Twas for thy sake, eternal God, the Son sustained that heavy load of base reproach and sore disgrace and shame defiled his sacred face. The Jews, his brethren and his kin, abused the man that checked their sin. While he fulfilled thy holy laws, they hate him, but without a cause." Pray with me. Father, we are burdened to study these things, but so glad that Jesus paid the full penalty of our sin. We know our sin is great, and we know your justice is perfect, and we know that Jesus had to do this so that we could go free. Father, if there's people here this morning, and I'm sure there are who don't know you, whose sins are between them and Jesus, who don't want to give up certain activities, certain pleasures. They don't want Jesus ruling their life and telling them what to do. I pray that you would right now break their heart and they would look at that man whose face was beaten beyond all recognition and see him there with the crown of thorns and the mocking reed in his hand and the robe bloodied and battered for them. Father, may they turn in faith to Jesus turn from their sin and grab hold of Jesus Christ for all their life. And for the rest of us, as we contemplate these things this week, may they make us shudder. May they make us grieve. But may they motivate us to rejoice and praise and live for our Savior who gave his all for us. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.